In Luke chapter 19, where our story is from this morning, we pick up the thread of Jesus' last journey as he's going toward Jerusalem and passing through Jericho. Earlier in the 18th chapter, Luke tells us that despite his explanations, the disciples are still somewhat obtuse to the whole process. They, they don't understand what's going on. They certainly are not anticipating that Jesus is going to actually die on a cross in Jerusalem not very many days hence. And the crowds are excited to see him again. They're excited that he's coming back that way. And the Bible tells us that the road to Jericho was lined with throngs of people. Luke tells us that one man who had come alongside was blind. His name was Bartimaeus, and as Jesus was approaching where he stood, he began to make quite a ruckus. He began to cry out and uh, ask uh, Jesus to help him. And the scripture says Jesus stopped and healed Bartimaeus and restored sight. And a whole new wave of excitement went through the crowds that this is Jesus who is bringing healing. And he just restored sight to a blind man. That news is going up and down the pathway as Jesus comes into Jericho where there's another man who is waiting to see who this guy is and what he's all about. His name is Zacchaeus. And the scripture tells us that he wanted to see Jesus. Now, I want to interrupt the story of Zacchaeus and give you a little bit of background because it's important, I think, for us to see uh, all of the elements of this story as they come together. Remember that the Jews are living in Palestine under Roman rule, and they absolutely hate it. They detest every day of it. They are anxiously waiting for someone to come and free them from Roman dominion. They're hoping that that person might be Jesus, that he might be God's anointed one, who is not only a religious and spiritual savior, but someone who will overpower Rome and give them freedom. The Jews have been living under this domination for quite some time, and uh, the Romans have become detestable to them. There was a time when Rome wanted to put its imperial seal of the eagle on the temple, and so... Uh, Averse were the Jews to having their temple uh, turned into what they considered idolatry, that the Pharisees and, and uh, all of the spiritual leaders and the priests at the time, in the face of the Roman army, knelt on the ground and pulled their tunics back from their neck and basically said, you can cut off our heads and kill us, but you will never put the Roman eagle on the doors of our temple. And Rome wisely backed down. They realized that it didn't do any good to govern dead people. <laughs> they couldn't help you in any way at all. And so they backed away from that. But that kind of shows the, the, the fervor and the passion of the Jews. And it kind of exemplifies their hatred for Rome. Now, 
Another part of the story is that, of course, if you're running the government, you have to collect taxes. And Rome, being a fairly politically savvy empire, understood that the best way to collect taxes was to pick people from among their subject nations to be the tax gatherers. There are a lot of good reasons for that. Number one, you understand your own culture, you know your own people, it's harder to pull the wool over your eyes. And so they picked people that they knew would have the inside track on the local culture. Well, you know what that did for the people that lived in the area. If you became a tax collector for Rome, you, in essence, were a traitor. You had turned your back on your own people. Um, They considered you among the most despicable people in the community. You had sacrificed the friendship and the camaraderie and the family spirit of your own countrymen in order to collect money for Rome. What added insult to injury was that Rome only required that the tax gatherers, based on the population and the commerce of the region, they assigned them a quota and said, you have to produce this much in taxes. Well, they had the opportunity to line their own pockets by introducing deceit and uh, alternative counting methods Uh, to wheedle extra funds out of the people, and so it put them in a position to, to become wealthy to the detriment of their own countrymen. Uh, all of that made these tax gatherers absolutely hated by their neighbors. They were the least desirable and most outcast. They, they were worse even than what we would call the skid row uh, elements of society. The the people, to explain the depth of emotion that the people had in hatred for tax gatherers just goes beyond our our comprehension. I mean, we don't like taxes, but not anything like the, the Jews of the first century. Now, Luke tells us that Zacchaeus was not merely a tax gatherer but that he was the chief tax gatherer. That means that he was responsible for the oversight of a whole region under which the tax gatherers worked. And he had the multiplied opportunity because of his status to deeply line his pockets. Because as long as the quota for the region was met, Uh, He could put extra pressure on the people working under him, and he could use his own influence to to make himself a very wealthy man. And in fact, uh, Luke tells us that that's exactly the position that Zacchaeus was in. As he introduces him in Luke 19, he says, There was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, which tells us that he was a Jew. That's a Jewish family name, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Um, It kind of lines up where this guy was, and it leaves us realizing that he was a very wealthy person, 
who was utterly despised by everybody around him. And in terms of kingdom values, two strikes were already against him. One is he was considered a despicable outcast, and the other is he was very wealthy. And we have many other stories in the Gospels of people who were very wealthy having a difficult time setting that aside to focus entirely on Jesus Christ. And yet, there was something in Zacchaeus that created a longing in his heart. He really, really wanted to see Jesus. Now, the problem was, when the news spread that Jesus was coming and the crowds rushed to the roadside, Zacchaeus was not among the first to hear. And so when he arrived, the, you know how it is at the parade. Uh, everybody's lined up, five deep or whatever. And uh, I remember going uh, to the Gasparilla Parade in Tampa uh, when I was a child. And if you didn't get there early and get a seat near the edge, it was really bad news because you couldn't see anything if you're like this tall, you know. And so, <laughs> yeah, thank you, Jan. <laughs> and so uh, Zacchaeus, like Jan, <laughs> Zacchaeus was short and couldn't see over the crowd. And, you, you know, you can kind of imagine him trying to uh, peer through or trying to find a place where he can get a glimpse of Jesus. And people are not only not willing to yield their spot, but when they see it's him. They're not about to give him any room. They hate this guy. And so the Bible tells us that he runs a little ways uh, down the road and finds a tree, and he climbs up in the tree. Now, i got to tell you, just in my mind's eye, that took a lot for him to do. It's bad enough to already be kind of despised by your community. But on top of that, he's wealthy. He's an aristocrat. He is a favorite of Rome. He is a local political figure of significant importance. And he's in a tree because he's too short to see. And for him to, to make that step, I think, was a real step of humility. That he was willing to sacrifice his reputation or whatever it took to catch a glimpse of Jesus. So here's, here's the setting. As Jesus is coming down the road, and Zacchaeus has finally got the vantage point in the limb of a tree overlooking the roadway, and to his utter amazement, Jesus stops right at the very base of that tree. And he looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, hurry up and get down out of there because I'm coming to your house to stay this day. <laughs> and the crowd, the Bible says, begins to grumble. They are, you can hear them. Doesn't he know? That's the worst guy in town. Why would he go there? Doesn't he know what kind of sinner this man is? Why would he go to his house? 
Meanwhile, Zacchaeus is overwhelmed with this amazing moment and opportunity as he gets out of the tree and excitedly begins to lead Jesus toward his house. And suddenly, while he's on the way, the scripture says he turns to Jesus and he says, I'm going to give half of everything I've got to the poor. And if I've defrauded anybody, I'm going to pay back four times what I've taken. And Jesus says to him, salvation has come to this house today. There are some amazing elements in what's going on there. We can kind of infer, and I think legitimately so, that despite Zacchaeus' prestige with Rome, despite his riches, despite his status in at least political life, even if he was hated by the community, he had thought that trading community favor for wealth and power would be a good deal. And he's far enough into the game now to realize that he's still empty and that his life is lacking meaning and fulfillment. He's heard about Jesus and there's something inside of him that is drawing him to want to encounter, at least catch a glimpse of who is this guy that's turning the place upside down. And then when that encounter occurs of meeting Jesus Christ on that Jericho road in the blink of an eye on the way to his house this man is totally transformed from the inside out he's turned all around and upended he's completely changed all of a sudden In the face of Jesus, he's willing to give away half of everything he's acquired. And on top of that, pay back anybody he's defrauded four times. Make everything right. He's showing the fruit of repentance. Repentance is not a good work, per se. Repentance is a change of heart. But it is manifest when a person acts in accordance with their transformation. His heart has changed and now he's going to do something to undo the damage of his life. Not because he feels he needs to pay for it, but because he wants to. There's been a total miraculous change in his heart. His motives are entirely different. Jesus calls it salvation. This moment, salvation has come to this man, this household, because there is the evidence that the Holy Spirit has been present and has done a work. And friends, one of the things that you and I need to realize on this side of the cross and this side of our salvation is that the Holy Spirit is at work in the lives of people. Sometimes the most unlikely people. He is at work in their lives. They may have a hunger in their heart. They may not know how to express it. It may not come out often. 
but somewhere deep down under the surface is the nagging sense that this is not what it's supposed to be in life. Something's missing. Augustine said that something, that void, was a God-shaped void, and people have no rest until they find their rest in Him. And the Holy Spirit is working to bring that to the surface. That is a part of His ministry of convicting and convincing the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment, to, to bring up to the surface that emptiness, that longing that was obviously in Zacchaeus' heart. And it is also the Holy Spirit who, when we encounter Jesus, makes Him real, makes the moment uh, transformational. That we have seen the living God face to face and that He has caught our heart and caught our attention. Zacchaeus is a different person. We don't hear any more about him in the Bible. Luke closes the chapter on this story and we move on but as Paul Harvey would say let me tell you the rest of the story the early church fathers writing about some of the events of history in that first century that didn't get into the scriptures tell us that Zacchaeus became bishop of Caesarea That means in their terms that he was the lead pastor of the Caesarean region and that he had gone from being a tax collector to a proclaimer of the gospel and a follower of Jesus Christ and that the change that was effected in him on that day was a permanent change and that his life was lived out counting for God as one of his anointed proclaimers of the gospel message. Isn't that an amazing rest of the story? And when the disciples kind of, in their wonderment, you know, looked at Jesus like, what's this all about? I mean, Zacchaeus of all people and his house and this salvation business, what is this all about? Jesus, in his own words, explains to them his mission. In verse 10 of Luke chapter 19, where the Son of Man has come to seek and to save what was lost. Not only to seek, but to save that his mission in his own terms is to find the lost sheep and bring them back to the Father in salvation. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And in that explanation of John is the demonstration of, can I call it the conspiracy of the Holy Trinity? that the Father uh, determined to send the Son, the Son willingly came, the Holy Spirit accompanying Him and anointing Him for the mission that Jesus described from the love of God, I have come to find the lost. 
And this was his last trip through Jericho. This was Zacchaeus' last opportunity, although he did not know it. Jesus would never pass that way again in this life, as far as we know. He was on his way to Jerusalem to go to the cross, but he stopped along the way, ignoring the crowds for a span of hours or maybe perhaps overnight, and went home to spend some time with a man that was the worst outcast in the whole community to bring salvation and to bring him into a relationship that lasted all the rest of Zacchaeus' life on earth and all the rest of eternity. Amazing, amazing story. But lost people matter to God. In the Christian Missionary Alliance, going all the way back to our very beginnings, we have felt that there was no place too far or too close, no cost too great, no people group too obstinate or too far removed or too strange for us to reach with the good news of Jesus Christ. Anthropologists used to blame mission organizations for entering, for example, the Stone Age Balim Valley where they were still headhunters and disrupting their culture. But those people were not happy people. They were sad and fearful and driven by spirits and cannibalistic and lived on war and hate. And Alliance missionaries carried the gospel of Jesus Christ into the interior in Indonesia in the Balim to point people to faith in Jesus Christ. A little later in our series, we're going to see the testimony of one of those missionaries who, like Jaffrey, gave his life for his conviction of the Word of God, but sacrificed to reach those people with the gospel. Stories have been written of CNMA missionaries who died as prisoners of the Viet Cong during the Vietnam War era. We have had people go to the Philippines and to the jungles of Africa and the Congo and to the jungles of South America and have given their lives, literally, sometimes within months of arriving on their field, like Sina, who was willing to go back to the killing fields of Cambodia. Her family said, are you crazy? You have an education. You're a nurse. You, you have a good income. You have a husband. Are you crazy? And she said, I could not stay here because there were people back in my country that had no hope. I had to go back. Isn't that an amazing story? Because in her heart was the passion of Jesus Christ. I have come to seek and to save what was lost. I wonder this morning if you and I have that same passion. When you look at the people around you in the community, 
when you look at your neighbors. Maybe the 10 people that you've been praying for whose names you put on that cross not too many months ago. One of the ones I was praying for is already in eternity. Shortly after we began our prayer time, he was diagnosed with brain cancer and he died within three months. I had a great burden for my friend Ken across the street. Lost people matter to God. You know, I never know, I never knew, and I won't until I see Jesus, if Ken had made that personal commitment to faith in Jesus Christ. And would you mark the spot and take this out of the audio on the web, please? I, I, I will never know if he made that personal choice. But I do know that we were able to talk together about Jesus and talk together about heaven. And the best way that he knew, he was trusting God, trusting Christ. But I wanted to hear some assurance that he had made that personal choice and that opportunity never came. He slipped into a coma. Friends, we don't know. We don't know how much time anyone has. But as long as you are living and breathing, you have the privilege of sharing the message. When you go into the presence of God, your opportunity to share the gospel is ended. You'll be in the Lord's presence. You're safely home. But your chances of sharing Christ have come to an end. As long as people are still living and breathing, they have an opportunity. But when they come to the end of their journey and they take the last breath, their opportunity to respond to the gospel message is over. The Bible says it's appointed to man once to die. After that, the judgment. There are no second chances, and there is no other way. That is why we have been compelled. A.B. Simpson put it in a hymn that he wrote, Lord, thou hast given to me a trust, a high and holy convocation to tell the world until I must the story of thy great salvation. Thou couldst sent from heaven above angelic hosts to tell the story, but in thy condescending love on man thou hast conferred the glory. Let me be faithful to my trust, telling the world the story. Press on my heart the woe. Put in my feet the go. Let me be faithful to my trust. We are the ones who have been given the hope of life eternal to communicate. And people without Jesus Christ will die in their sins and spend a Christless eternity. There's all kinds of arguments today from so-called Christians who deny the existence of hell to others who believe any way will get you there, no matter Mormon, 
Islam, Buddhist, it doesn't matter. As long as you're faithful, you'll get there somehow. It'll all work. But Jesus said the problem is not a person's religion. The problem is that they have sin in their life. The only solution is Jesus Christ and the price that he paid on the cross. Only his blood can satisfy the wrath and the judgment of God. Only his blood can cleanse us. There's no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved in the name of Jesus. The Bible says that every human being knows in their heart of hearts that there is a God and they know in their heart of hearts that, that there are righteous laws. And yet, in denial of the obvious truth, they go their own way. Like sheep who have gone astray and persist in their own direction. But God has laid on Jesus Christ the iniquity of them all. And unless they hear the story and have a chance to respond to the gospel message, unless they see Jesus passing on the road and he invites himself into their lives and they invite him to come home with them, unless that happens, the Bible says they will spend an eternity in hell separated from God forever. People scratch their head and say, how can a God of love do that? Because he's also a holy God. He cannot be other than himself. He will not, cannot bear to tolerate sin in his presence. But in his love, in his love, he has made a way. And that way is Jesus Christ. And we have been made the ambassadors of that great message. Lost people matter to God. We went astray. He has come to find us. We went astray. We are lost, but he has come to save us. And we have been given that trust. That is the driving heartbeat of the Christian Missionary Alliance. Not because it's who we are, but because it's who God is. And we have embraced that. Win the world to Christ and then bring back the King. How do you see lost people? How do you see the people around you? No matter who they are, no matter what they do, no matter how rich, how poor, no matter how healthy, how sick, no matter what status of life they have, people really only fit into one of two camps. They're either sons and daughters of God by virtue of new birth and faith in Jesus Christ and they have eternal life, or they are lost and dead in their trespasses and sins and there is no hope unless they hear the message. Only two kinds of people. It doesn't matter how ornery they are. It doesn't matter how despicable they are. It doesn't matter how much they're like Zacchaeus. You never know. 
what God is doing in the heart of that person who seems so stubborn and resistant and out of it. I encourage you today, if you don't have the passion of God for lost people, ask him to give it to you. Ask him to show you what he sees. Another favorite solo song of mine is, If I could see this world through your eyes, dear Lord. Let me see this world through your eyes. Would you pray that? Would you ask God to, to put on your heart the woe, to put in your feet the go? Would you ask him to give you his passion for lost people? They really, really matter. God. Father, thank you so much that you have loved us and sent your Son to redeem us. Oh Lord, let us not keep it a secret. We have been marvelously privileged to hear the gospel message. We have people all around us who need to understand it and still people all over the world who need to hear it for the first time. Lord, show us this world through your eyes and put the passion in our heart. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.